0: Number 5 Ephesians 3rd quarter 2023 John Pauline
1: Welcome ladies and gentlemen we're starting lesson 5 horizontal atonement the cross and the church in the quarter on Ephesians Dr John Pauline is our moderator and our opening prayer will be by Bill
2: Beloved Father, we thank you so much for this Sabbath day, for the opportunity to come together from various parts around the world. It is such a a joy, a great blessing that we can all come together like this. Father, please be with John Pauline as he leads out in the discussion of our lesson today. Father, we thank you for your guidance, your help, your love and care as we study your holy word. In Jesus' wonderful name,
3: amen. Amen. So this is the fifth in a series on the book of Ephesians, a letter in the New Testament that was written by Paul and may have been to the church of Ephesus. Some of the earliest manuscripts don't have the term Ephesus in it, and there are some elements in the book that suggest that whoever he's writing to, he doesn't know as well as you'd think he'd know the Ephesians, having lived there for three years in the five years previous. So. Be that as it may, perhaps the best compromise is that it's a circular letter that Paul deliberately intended it to go to churches and maybe didn't have a destination in mind, but just said, you know, circulate this around because it is quite general and doesn't deal specifically with the issues of a particular church. And, of course, then over time churches who received copies of this letter would see it as their own and those who be associated with them and perhaps that's how ephesians became ephesians but in chapter two we're moving through chapter two here if you go to number one in your outline in ephesians 2 1-10 paul taught that we live in solidarity with jesus he died we died in him he rose we rose in him. He ascended to heaven. We ascended with him. He's seated at the right hand of God. We're seated there with him. In this lesson, we will look at Ephesians two eleven to 22. There, Paul teaches that the implication of our solidarity with Jesus is that we can now live in solidarity with each other, even when the other has been a foreigner, a stranger, or an enemy in the past. And the last time we did get into that just a little bit, how this idea of solidarity with Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God, how that impacts the way that we relate to others. We'll dig a little deeper into that this week. So Jesus' death has vertical benefits in relation to God and horizontal benefits in relationship with others. All right, moving to number two in your outline, Ephesians 2 and verses 13, and 14.
4: But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us
3: many years, people read that passage and wondered what this wall was. I mean, it was clearly a metaphor of some sort, but it seems more specific than just walls in general. And so I think important background to this lesson, as you'll see in number two, would be imagining a former Gentile. Remember, Paul is saying you again, all right? And the second person here seems specifically aimed at the Gentiles. And perhaps this is a circular letter for the sake of gentile christians and might have been noted to be such originally so you have a former gentile visiting the temple complex in jerusalem he's left the worship of other gods and embraced the god he found in judaism nevertheless as he approaches the temple itself you know the temple courts is one thing but as he approaches the temple himself he's confronted by a four foot high wall with inscriptions next to all the gaps in the wall And the inscriptions say that any Gentile passing through that entrance point will be responsible for his own death, which would follow shortly thereafter. So Gentiles were shut out from the apex location of the Jewish religion and therefore alienated from those who shared his newfound faith. Awareness of that wall inside the temple complex seems to lie behind the key message of this week's passage. As a result of this deliberate separation, it's natural that someone would ask, does a Gentile need to become a Jew in order to follow Jesus? Now, Livius, you will remember that when we were granted the special access into the top floor of the Archaeology Museum in Istanbul, that one of the things we saw there was one of these flagstones from the temple in Jerusalem. As the rest of you may remember, it was the Ottomans who ruled Jerusalem for some 500 years until into the 20th century itself. And so many of the archaeological finds in Jerusalem ended up in Istanbul in the archaeology museum there. Now, the Turks complained that the most magnificent structure from Pergamum is in berlin but they themselves have some of the best stuff from the temple in jerusalem which probably isn't heading back anytime soon in the temple you have this flagstone that basically said gentiles don't pass this point there were several of them but one of them is found in the archaeology museum in istanbul also there is a stone that was in one of the corners of the temple complex the outer complex and it's called the place of trumpeting in hebrew you can read it it's engraved right into the stone the place of trumpeting this had fallen down during the destruction of the temple fell down below and was found in the rubble not all that long ago that also was removed and went to jerusalem you also have the inscription from hezekiah's tunnel was about 2700 years old talking about how they dug the tunnel from two different directions and end up missing by about 12 inches or so and having to make an adjustment and so it talks a little bit about that so it's fascinating that we have at least some clear connections with the biblical text hezekiah's tunnel is very carefully described in the Old Testament. And so, to have that inscription there is an important substantiation for the Bible, as is the stone in the temple for Ephesians
1: 2. Bob? So, if a Gentile converted to Judaism, they did not become a Jew for purposes of passing through this wall? They could not become a full Jew? Well,
3: you're asking a delicate question, because how do you
1: know a full
3: Jew from a Gentile, it has to do with a thing called circumcision. And so apparently there was some sort of ways of checking if a person was genuinely a Jew. There were Gentiles who embraced Judaism to that extent, but male circumcision of an adult is not a picnic, and it was definitely not desirable as entrance into a religion. So most Gentiles became what were called God-fearers which is a way of saying they're Jews in their belief system and in their life practices, but they've chosen not to go 100%. They remain on the outside, and those would not be permitted entrance into the temple. The church, understandably, was made up, maybe not at this time yet, but shortly thereafter, majority of uncircumcised Gentiles made up the church. Michael?
2: Paul's letter addressed to the Ephesians. That was composed before the Diaspora, which happened around about 70 AD. Am I correct in that regard?
3: Yeah, there was a huge Diaspora after 70, you're correct. The Diaspora goes back hundreds of years before this, though, because already the Jews had been exiled to Assyria and then later on to Babylon, hundreds of years before Jesus. And so Jews all around the empire was a reality before 70 AD. But there's a much bigger influx after that.
2: Well, isn't 70 AD when what we would call Gentiles or Christ followers were being expelled from the synagogues?
3: Well, not just Gentiles, just Christians in general were expelled from the synagogues sometime after 70. Because there was the note that of all the different Jewish sects, only the Christians escaped when there was an opening there during the siege. So it's a feeling like they abandoned us. And in resentment for that abandonment, the hardening of the ways between the two religions, the separation, began sometime after 70. Yeah. All right, so Paul in Ephesians 2 is using that temple wall as an analogy for how Gentiles were alienated from Judaism, generally. So their lack of access to the temple became a metaphor for their lack of access to Judaism and its God in a very real sense. They were not going to be 100% Jewish. The issue we mentioned here was really the issue of Acts 15. In Acts 15, the question was, does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? Obviously, you could attend the synagogue without being a Jew officially. And many gentiles did you could hear that in paul he's saying men of israel and you who fear god hear me out he says that frequently in his preaching in acts so you get the impression that most synagogues had a large contingent of gentiles who were there because they admired the religion and found it superior to their own religions and their own cultures but these were not embraced as full jews Timothy would be an example of one whom Paul said, we need to get him circumcised so that he can work with Jews as an equal, like I can. So he had Timothy circumcised along the way. So in the council, the question was, does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? And the answer was no, but it would be wise for Gentiles to make certain accommodations in what they eat and where they go, etc. So that if a Jew and a Gentile sits at the same table, they won't end up in a battle. So the council sought to cut the middle and say, no, Gentiles don't have to become Jews. They can be full-bodied members of the church. But since there are many Jews in the church, for their sake, we want you to accommodate. And when you are eating together, fellowshipping together, there's certain common elements that everybody has to observe. So, moving on to number 3, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2.
4: So then, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world.
3: So here, Paul goes back to ground that he covered before. At the beginning of Ephesians 2, in verses 1 to 3, he says, this is where you were before. And here, Paul is explicit, you Gentiles, all right? He says those very words here, so that helps us to see how this second person was working. So he's describing their former condition again. He says, remember, he says, you were Gentiles by birth. You were uncircumcised and circumcised. It's name calling going on. The Jews called the Gentiles the uncircumcised and the Gentiles called the Jews the circumcised. And then it says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, and without God in this world. That's a different language than he used at the beginning of the chapter. So Paul is coming back to this and elaborating on it. Before, there was external and internal issues. When they were in their free christian state, they were subject to external forces like the culture and Satan, subject to internal forces, including the uncontrolled desires and things like that. Here, Paul emphasizes other aspects of that alienation. They were uncircumcised. They were separate from Christ. They were alienated from Israel. You know, the wall was just a symbol of that alienation. They were strangers to the covenants. You can attend the synagogue, but you're really not part of us. You're really not part of this covenant with God, without hope, without God in the world. So, Paul comes back to their pre-salvation condition, and that raises a question I'd like you to ponder for a bit. Why do you think Paul repeatedly reminds the Ephesians to remember where they came from? What do you think is going on there? And let me phrase the question a little bit differently. When is dwelling on the past a healthy thing, and when does it become a sign that we're not living in the present? Now, have you ever met somebody who's always talking about something somebody did to them in the past? And, you know, you can be apart for three months and you come back together and say, you know, I've been thinking these people really messed me up and stuff like that. And it's just, you know, it's sort of an endless thing. At what point does remembering the past become circling the drain and, and accomplishing nothing or even doing harm? And at what point is it a healthy thing? Paul is evidently thinking it's a healthy thing here. What are your thoughts on that? Sean?
1: Remembering and dwelling are two different psychological dimensions. It's important to remember in reference to the learning process of moving forward. Dwelling is a difficult environment in our mental health. So I think that Paul uses this contrast very keenly here. It is an important teaching tool to remember so that we have a reference point to know where we're going. And Paul has this down pat, and he has because of his own experience and the context with which he is ministering and observing. He has a very keen eye as to the individuals, the different classes and cultures, and he's able to compel these various classes and cultures with the language required for them to be stimulated to move forward. Remembering and dwelling are two different dimensions here, and Paul is not insisting that we dwell in the past, but we use the past as a reference point.
3: I like that concept of reference point, if you lose track of that, you may get lost in the present. (laughs) All right, Lou.
2: Like Sean was saying, I think people who get stuck there... And never move forward and learn from the mistakes, but move forward. And I think getting stuck is a very dangerous position because you just go round and round. Like you were saying, you can meet somebody 10 years later and they're still stuck with the same story of how they've been a victim and been abused. And that just keeps us earthbound and doesn't lift us up above into where God wants
4: us to be in his relationship.
3: Okay. Yes. Thank you. Terry?
4: Well, I think dwelling can be pretty detrimental to not only the person who is doing the dwelling, but those who they come in contact with. All of us, I think, have probably run into those people who dwell. I think part of it might be a bid for validation. This really was bad. This really did happen to me. It not only keeps them down, but it pulls the people that they come in contact with down. However, remembering could be used as a great encouragement to others. This is where I came from. This is what happened to me. But I have been able to move on. I've been able to heal. I've been able to grow. And you too can get to this point. So I think it can be a great encouragement.
3: The impact on other people is one way to detect when the past is constructive and when it is not. Iris?
0: I'd like to respond to this the following way. It is amazing when we allow God to work in our lives. He takes us places we never thought are possible. He does do a transformative work in us, but there is a temptation. And that's the temptation that we forget that it is really the work of the Lord in us. And when he uses us, there is a temptation for us to draw a faulty conclusion as if there were anything special about us in and of ourselves. And Satan likes to use that and to give us then the sense of superiority over others, especially if on, on moral grounds it seems like we are better than we're at risk to pass judgment. And I think that's where Paul reminds us: where would we be? Without the grace of the Lord in our lives, Mm -hmm. we would be just as crippled. And it is only through his grace and through his transformative work in our lives that anything useful happens in our lives. So I think this is a strong reminder. So Satan pursues really a double tactic here, either to keep us stuck in the past with all the wrongs that happened to us, as if these Experiences had power and they do have power in the lives of people. Detrimental experiences in the past can hold us in bondage. But then he tries to hide from our eyes the understanding that Christ has come to liberate us, to set us free. Or on the other end, he tricks us into believing that there's something special about us, that we are superior. And in both cases, God cannot accomplish what he wants to accomplish in us. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Iris. You're building on the previous passage and the previous week's study, I think, very helpfully there, that Paul is reminding them of what went before because he also wants to remind them of the remedy and remind them of the importance of the moves that they have made. Henry?
5: i kind of trying to look this into a different perspective. I feel that since the topic of this lesson is the horizontal at one end, This reconciliation between these two peoples, Gentiles and the Jews. And verse 11 says that, remember that you were the uncircumcised, but you were called like that, not by God, but you were called the uneligible. You were called like the outcast, not by God, but by the ones that thought were the circumcised. And I think that this is the topic that he's addressing here. He's addressing this wall of division that was not built by God, but but these people, as Iris was mentioning, was feeling superior to them. And that now God is coming, Jesus, and he's saying, no, you are not different. I am eliminating that barrier that my people erroneously believe. I had. So remember that I was not the one that expelled you. We read throughout the whole history of Scripture, and Daniel Duda insists on that passage that is very vital on Genesis 22. You will be a blessing for all nations. But these people that were supposed to be the blessing for all nations were the one making the division in between them. And now Jesus comes and says, there is no division. It has never been. I am calling you in because you have always belonged. This is what I think is the topic of this section.
3: Mm, okay. Thank you. Larry.
5: The idea is to
6: remember. Seventh-day Adventists start out with a verse in the Bible that says, remember, that's the key phrase for what we stand for is to remember. And Moses, or God's telling the Israelites, remember, you were a slave, so you understand how to treat people. In the last week's lesson, a key point that Paul brought out is the idea that you are continually in the presence of heaven, that being with Christ at the right hand of God. And so there's these ideas, if we don't remember who we are. We wake up each morning, if you don't know who you were from yesterday, when you wake up today, today can be extremely difficult. So having a clear understanding of all of this, I think is very important to maintaining the balance that Paul keeps trying in dealing with the struggle or battle or running the race that he talks about in his other books, other letters, he's not using the word remember in any level of a derogatory sense, but I think it's a very
3: positive thing. Mm -hmm. Yes, very much so. Thank you. Alan?
7: It was a lot shorter this time, but often it seems that God gives a history through the writers of Scripture when he wants to remind Those who are listening, of what he has done for them and what he expects out of them, versus just saying it. And it seems to me that Paul is doing that here. He's reminding them of what has happened and thus pushing them along to what the future holds.
3: Now, counselors will often tell you that one of the clearest symptoms of being governed by the past is behavior that's out of proportion. For example, you're just walking down the street. And you inadvertently bump into somebody along the way, and they turn around and yell at you for two and a half minutes. Okay, that is out of proportion. You are not the problem. The bump was not the problem. It's somehow that brief incident called up all kinds of memory and pain, and and the person themselves may not know what it is that's troubling them deep down inside. But when actions are completely out of proportion, that would be an indication that the past has not been confronted. And you can't deal with issues if they're repressed. So at the roots of healing, remember, Paul is talking about healing here. Remember where you were, because if you don't remember, you may find yourself behaving in some strange ways in the future. So Paul is encouraging them to deal with that. Once you've dealt with it, you don't want to dwell there forever and ever. But it's important to deal with things because they do affect who, you know, when you stuff your emotions deep down where you can't even feel them, they act like wildcats. They start scratching on the walls and creating a ruckus down there. And it manifests itself in conscious behaviors that are out of proportion. In the end, the best way to deal with the past, and this is the goal, it's not always immediately possible, but the best way to deal with the past is forgiveness. When you do confront the realities of the past, they hold you with chains, but you can break the chains through forgiveness. Forgiveness, as difficult as that can be in some circumstances, done from the heart, breaks the chains of the past, frees you, even though the other person may not be free, but it frees you, even the victim, from carrying this and resenting it the rest of your life. Someone once said... uh, (laughs) unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping that someone else dies because you may not even be affecting the person that abused you but in constantly running it through your mind and running it through your mind you're poisoning yourself and forgiveness breaks those chains and enables one to walk away and as i said it's not easy and it's not immediate you can forgive somebody intellectually many many times before feelings start to catch up but that is a pathway to healing from the past and of course forgiveness is a major new testament theme for that reason i believe in verse 13 paul describes the conversion experience in a fresh way different than what he did earlier in the chapter he says now in christ jesus you who were far away have been brought near so that's a different analogy we had the analogy of dead. And made alive. We had the analogy of sick and made well. Now there's the analogy of being far away and brought near. So this is where we get back to the wall again, because that's what the next thing that Paul mentions the idea that the Gentiles were far away. Now here's where it gets interesting. If you keep your finger in Ephesians 2 and turn back to Isaiah 57, Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 19. I want you to notice something. Isaiah 57, verse 19, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. Who's the far in Isaiah 57? Who's he speaking to? The mourners in Israel. They are in the country. They are Israelites. Others have been taken to Babylon or Assyria and taken far away. So in this particular text, the far away are actually Israelites. But Paul takes Isaiah 57 and applies it to Gentiles, that just as Jews could be alienated from Jerusalem, alienated from their fellow family, so Gentiles were alienated from Israel and have now been brought near. So Paul is speaking of Israel's alienation in the Old Testament, applies it here to the Gentiles. So let's get into the meat of this wall imagery. Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. This is number four in your outline.
4: For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances, so that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it.
3: All right, so Paul here says, Jesus Christ is our peace. He broke down the wall. He abolished the rules that separate us. And we'll get into that a little bit later. What could that be? That's been a challenging text for many. One man in place of two, reconciled in one body to God at the cross. So in a real sense, Paul, earlier in the chapter, wanted us to imagine ourselves at the right hand of God, on the throne of God. Now he's calling us to imagine ourselves at the cross. And if every human being who needs the cross shows up and kneels down at the foot of the cross, who's there? Everybody. Black and white, brown, English, French, Spanish, other languages. It doesn't matter where you're from. At the cross, our need is all the same. And Paul asks us to imagine ourselves at the foot of the cross in principle and how deeply each one of us needs it Pastor and people, conference president and outside visitor. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. There are no religious superiors. And the cross itself makes that clear no religious superiors. We're all equal in our need for the cross. There are other texts in Ephesians that talk about the cross and human relationships. Why don't we take a look at those? There's four of them there. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8.
4: In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us.
3: All right. So in this text, the cross is the place where forgiveness happens. Father, forgive, for they know not what they do. So the cross provides the foundation of forgiveness, which is necessary whenever you have two groups of people Who have been hostile to each other and this is the thing if victimhood is the lens through which we look at ourselves then there'll be no end of atrocities and i remember once talking to someone who was a big fan of isis and i said why would you go there and he said well and he recounted the whole history of atrocities against islam through the last thousand years. And it was an impressive history. And it was a passionate history. And he said, after all that they have done to us, it's only fair. And I came to realize, wow, you know, if you ask a Ukrainian, what are they fighting for? If you ask a Russian, what they are fight- They'll have their list of grievances toward the other. Groups in humanity are full of grievances toward others. And we can all make those lists, keeping score of wrongs. Paul says in another place. But then I mentioned on that occasion, but how ISIS is responding to those grievances is creating a whole new generation of grievances. And to his credit, he stopped for a moment. Oh, he says, I never really looked at it that way. He says, it kind of looks different when you look at it that way that if we respond to grievances with more atrocities, then the next generation will have even more grievances to fuel hatred violence and everything else that's happening in this world the only answer i'm aware of and you can name it with different words but ultimately unless we forgive and break the chains of the past we will end up creating atrocities of our own they may be verbal emotional rather than physical or violent but we can slay with words as easily as we slay with our fists so paul is saying this peace thing comes when we realize that the greatest atrocity of human history occurred at the cross. And if human beings are capable of that, there's no end. Atrocities will not end until we're all dead. And so apart from God's remedy, there's no moving forward on these issues. And so in Ephesians 1, forgiveness is an important root here. What about 4.32? Ephesians 4.32.
4: And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. All
3: right, so there you see the forgiveness of Christ at the cross. That's the expression of God's forgiveness of us as the foundation for forgiving others. Chapter 5, verse 2.
4: And live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God.
3: So the love of God at the cross motivates our love toward one another. Verse 25.
4: Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sherry. When we
0: talk about forgiveness, it seems to me that it's much easier to forgive if we feel safe. A lot of not forgiving is because we don't feel safe. We feel in danger and in harm. And if we can sense the safety of knowing that God is with us, that he loves us, that he will be with us through whatever comes next it's a lot easier to forgive. But again, I think the forgiveness is very much linked with a feeling of either feeling safe or not feeling safe. Fear is a great barrier to forgiveness.
3: I think that's a very important point. And I would add to that forgiveness is not about the other person. The other person doesn't even have to know that you've forgiven them. In fact, if the other person is dead, they can't know that you've forgiven them. So forgiveness is about us. If we hang on to these grievances, if we hang on to this past, we're the ones that are suffering. Now, there may be circumstances where forgiving a person in person is necessary for us, whether they accept it or not. But whether that person's forgivable or not, it's not about them. Forgiveness is about us, and it's healing the way forward between us and God, and then between us and others, I think. Larry?
6: One of the things that helped me in this process of understanding forgiveness is when I understood that God's forgiveness towards us originated before he made us. There was no time after creation where God actually got involved in actively forgiving anybody. It was done prior. So when we're called to forgive in the same manner in which we're forgiven, it therefore becomes important for me to understand that the wrongs that are done to me, I have to actually move, whether the right word is forward or backward, but I have to go somewhere else in time to an event prior. I cannot forgive you for what you did today. I actually have to be able to forgive you before I knew you, if that makes any sense at all. So that when it occurs, when the slight occurs to me or the injury or whatever it is, I have to be of a mindset that I am not currently injured. I need to see it for the fact that it was something that began a long time ago. And Once I started looking at it that way, I was able to then understand and accept the forgiveness for myself and be able to forgive other people to the point that when the occurrences happen, it is much quicker for me to recover than what it ever used to be.
3: Yeah, that was a Paul-like statement in which you went all the way back to the beginning. And doesn't that underline the very point that forgiveness is not about the other person, it's something that happens to us and terry made the comment in the chat that forgiving someone else doesn't make them safe and that's an important counterbalance to all this forgiving someone else doesn't make them safe but ultimately it's not about them we may forgive someone and still keep a distance we forgive them because it's healthy for us to do so but being near them is not safe (laughs) being near them is not healthy and so it doesn't change necessarily the other person but if god could forgive us before we existed then forgiveness is prior to and outside of any change that may happen to the other person involved let me just say and we'll get into this more when we get to ephesians 5 where marriage is one of the implications of this whole concept of reconciliation and peace my wife and i have have essentially come to realize that a healthy marriage requires daily forgiveness that you know don't let the sun go down on your anger is a biblical statement but that there's little things that happen in any relationship that if allowed to accumulate can create behavior out of proportion right and when you forgive in fact, I'm thinking it's hourly forgiveness. It's just simply, as Larry was saying, you go into the day with a plan to forgive as needed. <laughs> you see? And it keeps the relationship clean and whole. And uh, perhaps we'll get into that more when we get into the marriage chapter in chapter 5. Livius.
1: I think forgiveness is empowered by remembering by the past we were all dead in trespasses and sin and so having that perspective retrospective puts us on a level playing field kind of brings down the wall and so the wall is bad for both sides those on the inside and those on the outside because on the outside you can't see you can't see the future and on the inside you can't see the past so so it's important to bring down the wall to get the entire picture and Paul himself was far off before his conversion and he was brought near and he had this thing that he wanted God to take away but he said no you're going to have to deal with it and i think that helped him keep that wall down to give him this perspective excellent point henry
5: i think that in this segment there is more than forgiveness, understanding that they were forgiven by God. Because I agree with Larry that that forgiveness took place way, way before, from the foundation of the earth or the universe, and that the cross was just a demonstration that they were forgiven. It was not the act for forgiveness, but the demonstration. Because as Terry and you were mentioning that, It doesn't make the other person safe, and even if you forgive them, you may keep the distance. God did not keep any distance, Mm -hmm. even though we were not safe. So he demonstrated that forgiveness was at its fullest. Even when you are not safe, I'm still coming to let you know that you have been forgiven because I am willing to live among you even though you're not safe. But I think there's this another element of forgiveness that needed to happen in here, because this was not just the reconciliation between the Gentiles to God, because if they were without Christ, if they were separate from Christ, it was not because God kept them separate. It was because the Israelites kept them separate. They were the ones that were keeping them away from salvation. They were the ones that were keeping everybody out. So there is where the reconciliation needed to take place. Now, Paul used to hate them and didn't want to stay close with them. But now he's loving them and sharing with them what he used to keep them away from. And that's where this Jesus and his life and his death on the cross represents now you both can be reconciled because the one that was blocking the way for you to get access to salvation, now they are open through the communion of the demonstration that God has done, that you both were actually outside. You both, as we just described in the first verses of chapter one, it's not just you were dead we were there as well. And it seems to me this is the reconciliation, the horizontal part that God is representing in here.
3: Thank you. Really appreciate those thoughts. Michael, and then I want to tell you a little story.
2: One of the problems that I've faced this in the past is proportion. You know, the idea that you not only forgive, but it depends on the circumstances. The teenage son that takes the family car on a Saturday night and brings it back wrecked. You know, it's, well, that's all right. I forgive you. doesn't get the car fixed so i see that and the other thing a lot of this turmoil in the world that that has been going on and i remember in the balkans in the 1990s and it was just atrocious what was going on and one of the things i heard from those people and i can understand why they would say it with yes we'll make peace but first we got to get even Mm -hmm. and In Ireland, they finally got a resolution between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland by simply saying, we're going to do this. No more of this tit-for-tat, getting even. We just call it over with because we're killing one another and creating havoc in lives." But it's easy to point to that kind of an example. It's very difficult on a massive scale to put it in proportion, to put it into practice. And for my part, I have to recognize that in any circumstances, what was my part? What did I do? Maybe I need more than just say, I'm sorry. I need to do something. Go beyond that. Demonstrate the fact that I am contrite. And in practice, I can simply say it's a difficult process.
3: And again, Paul's talking about adults, I think here, rather than parents raising their children. If a child goes out and wrecks the car and they didn't even have a license and stuff, there's got to be consequences. Forgiveness, waving a wand is not what matters at that point. But Paul here talking about adults and these grievances, sometimes even silly grievances that we hold can be great barriers to the kind of unity that Ephesians is all about. I had a student who became a much braver pastor than I would ever be. He faced an interesting situation in his church, and I'll be curious what you think of his solution. But there was a woman in the church that committed adultery and was excommunicated by the church. And for many years, the church prided itself in doing the right thing but then when this pastor came into the church he encountered this woman and after some time she was repentant and said i've ruined my life and so i need to get back where i was before i need to be back in church i need to be back with the lord but then when he explored bring her back in and rebaptizing her there was great opposition in the church because this was upsetting the narrative of how they had drawn the boundaries, etc. And there was great resistance. And in working with the woman, he came up with this solution. He told the story of the woman taken in adultery, and then had the deacons pass out stones to the church. And then he said, if you are willing to forgive this woman and embrace her, then come up to the front and lay your stone at her feet. And if you're not willing, then take the stone home with you. And he said, the people are just shaking to actually confront how they were thinking and the impact it might have on relationships. I don't know that I could do something like that. And that woman must have been something to not only agree, but to suggest such a step forward, but to bring her back into fellowship. It seemed that radical was necessary. We're not talking about easy stuff here in real life. These things are terribly challenging and we may not get them right many times, but If we can visualize ourselves at the foot of the cross, I think it will make a huge difference. We come to this other little piece here. What are these commandments? How does it worded commandments? I think it's 215. Terry, how is it worded in the New Revised Standard?
4: He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances so that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two thus making peace
3: okay so in my niv it says by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations those are creative translations to some degree Uh, let me see i think i put the greek here somewhere yeah it's the law of commandments in degrees that's the original the law of commandments in decrees he abolished that it's very difficult to try to imagine exactly what he was saying there evidently it must have been a phrase that they recognized that they could apply immediately some have taken this to mean that the ten commandments were abolished but in what sense were the ten commandments the barrier between jew and Gentile? that would be the question And I think the answer is no, the Ten Commandments would not be the barrier between Jew and Gentile if people stop hating and they stop stealing and they stop coveting and they stop lying and so on. That would enhance relationships between people. So it's something going on here. Someone suggested it's the Sabbath. But the Sabbath was not an issue here. There's no evidence that the first century church had an issue with Sabbath. There is evidence that they had an issue with food and an issue with circumcision. So in order to make peace it was necessary to abolish those regulations that divided Jew from Gentile. Without being much more specific than that, Paul is saying something about, there's something about the Jewish religious culture that was keeping Gentiles and Jews separate. Certainly food was one of them, circumcision was another, and both of those are abolished in this case in order to make peace between the two. That Paul was not abolishing the Ten Commandments is clear because he alludes to five of them in the latter half of the book. So five of the commandments are explicitly in mind, and he does not abolish them. But there's some things there keeping Jew and Gentile apart, and Acts 15 does address those to some degree. All right, Larry.
6: There's something about the forgiveness idea that I'm feeling that I need to kind of address here. My father was unable to, A, accept the the fact that God had forgiven him for the things he had done, and he was unable to then forgive others for slights that he had felt of things that had happened to him early in his life as an Adventist minister. And as a result of that, it colored his view of both God and church up until the end of his life. And so he and I had many conversations on that in the last years of his life. And as I've wrestled with this myself and the fact we discussed fear a bit earlier, and the fear has to do with punishment and the fact that how do you avoid punishment? I've done something wrong. How do I avoid this? In my own, it wasn't until I began to understand I had to forgive myself the things I've done, that I was then able to allow that forgiveness model to work through on me. And I know many Christians and even Adventist Christians who have fear of punishment. So I think this is possibly a much bigger issue in our own culture, as well as just the main Christian culture, And what we might be dealing with here, so I think it's very important, and I appreciate how you brought it together. But I I think hopefully people will focus on this a little bit more, and I appreciate your willingness to bring it up the way you
3: did. Well, Larry, I had it written down. I don't know if I actually said it, but I did have written down: forgive others, forgive yourself. But I may not have actually said that. So I appreciate you bringing it up in a very helpful way. In terms of counseling with people. It can go either way. There are some people who have a harder time forgiving themselves than forgiving others. And forgiving others is a good starting point to get into the idea. Other people forgiving themselves is really the first step. And then they can begin to forgive others. So I appreciate you making that distinction and illustrating at least one situation in which inability to forgive oneself may have prevented other forms of forgiveness that were even more important for the situation. So, yeah very helpful in that regard. We're heading toward the end of our time here. I'm going to skip over number six. Basically, number six was talking about peace from different angles, and I think we had a good discussion on that last week, so we will let that go. But I encourage you to reread verses 17 and 18 and Look at the texts in the Gospel of John that are put in your handout along with that. You may find those helpful. But let's read Ephesians two, nineteen to twenty-two, and this is number seven. Ephesians two nineteen to twenty-two.
4: So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God.
3: So notice here, Paul is describing just pouring out analogies for this new unity, all right? He started again with the disunity. You guys were far off. And there was this wall between you and the Jews. But now that wall is broken down at the foot of the cross. We are all one group, one body, et cetera. And so now he's saying, what is the resulting unity? And he uses a number of different metaphors here. One of them is Citizenship. You all now belong to the same country. And just as countries usually don't fight themselves, there is such a thing as civil war. But usually if you're citizens of the same country, you're on the same side when there's an external conflict. So we're all citizens of the same country. We're all part of the same household. We're all part of the one family. We're all stones in the temple. And that's an image that's carried out more clearly in other places. But there's a sense that we are all built into this temple. And not only that, this is a temple that grows. So you've got horticultural imagery here. The church is like a plant that is constantly growing. And if it stops growing, it will die. So to grow in peace, to grow in reconciliation is central to the mission here. So there's a few other texts here. First Corinthians 3, 9-17. to This is also temple imagery, and we want to reflect on the different ways that Paul uses temple imagery for the church. First Corinthians 3.
4: For we are God's servants, working together, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple.
3: So here again, the church is modeled as a temple. What Paul adds to is the idea that all of us have a role in building that temple. We can help to build the church and some will build better than others. You know, But he makes the interesting comment, even if your work is burned up, you'll still be saved. So he's talking about saved Christians, some respond more effectively than others in accomplishing the work of the church. So that's the image that's going on here. When he says, you are the temple, that you is a plural in the Greek. You can't tell the difference in English between singular and plural in Greek. You can. So Paul here is saying the temple is an analogy for the church. And we're all part of that temple, and we're all involved in constructing it together. 2 Corinthians 6.14-7.1
4: Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship is there between light and darkness? What agreement does Christ have with believer? Or what does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. Then I will welcome you, and I will be your father, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and of spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God.
3: So you'll notice here is temple imagery for the church again. So repeatedly in the New Testament, the temple is a metaphor for the church. But in this particular place, it's a different theme. Here it's the purity. The temple separates from what is outside. The temple is a holy place. Outside is an unholy place. So here, Paul is emphasizing the purity of the church, that the church as a temple may need to shut out outside influences or even sometimes outside people. So Paul there is using it very differently than he's using it in Corinthians or in Ephesians. One more, and that's 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. And this comes back more to the Ephesians theme.
4: Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ.
3: All right, so in Peter, the focus is on the individuals who make up the church. The larger focus is reconciliation in Ephesians But the idea that we're all individuals built up into a temple, I think, is a strong use of that metaphor. Our time is almost up. I want to go to number nine. And if you would like to respond to this, we do have time for that. According to the evidence of Scripture, how does God treat those who are different? According to the evidence of Scripture, how does God treat those who are different? And I guess one thing you could say is we're all different from God. The difference between us and God is greater than the differences among ourselves. How does God treat the difference? Sean?
1: My first reaction is not scriptural as much as it's just my own emotional thought about it. God sees no difference in any of us. I don't really know how to gauge, quote unquote, different from god's perspective i do know how to gauge different from my own perspective which is something i am praying to god he will exhume from me sometime soon i don't think god sees differences
3: one of my favorite preachers once said god is a variety junkie he says just look at all the different species of animals look at all the different species of flower Look at all the different species of insects. Look at all the different varieties within the human race. Look at all the different shapes of snowflake. No two have ever been found to be identical. God loves variety, and yet he does not discriminate. He draws no difference in terms of value and how he treats. Yeah. I think there's a verse that says, The Lord loveth the stranger. That'd be the old King James. And then thinking of when Jesus was here in person one of the accusations against him was he receives sinners and eats with them. So whether it's people who are just a foreigner
2: or someone who is socially unacceptable in other ways, God loves everyone.
3: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. Larry. There
6: is only one way in which God sees the difference between us. There's those of us who trust him and those of us who don't. And, Ironically, it doesn't treat any of them any differently. So, in the context of the lesson, God is the same towards everybody, even those who he knows or observes as not trusting him. Thank you.
7: Alan? Henry already pointed out in the chat about Galatians, where there is no Jew nor Gentile. But one time I did a talk talking about the hand of God. We think of this really horrible, right? The hand of God getting it. But we know that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And I would suggest, based on how Jesus acted, he embraced the difference. And I won't go through the whole list, but he touched the leper. He touched the sick who were brought to him. He touched Peter's mom's hand. He touched the terminally ill daughter's hand he grabbed peter was wavering and stuff like that you could keep going down and he touched everybody even though we all know from say the story of the centurion did he need to touch people to heal them he didn't so i would suggest the way that jesus treats the different is to embrace them and he did it at his own risk for instance you touch a leper you're unclean right he helped people when he knew he was going to be damned for it by the religious leaders so I would just say that he embraces the different on purpose, visibly.
3: Mm. Mm. like that very much. Henry?
5: I was originally thinking that he treats treat us all the same, but I don't think he does. He gives the specific prescription for everyone's condition. He loves us the same, but he gives us exactly what we need. I'd, he will never give me what you need, John. He Mm. will give me what Henry needs. So he will treat me in a specific way.
3: Mm. Yes. Very, very good. We are all unique. If there's no two snowflakes alike, then there's definitely no two human beings alike. We are all unique. And you notice in the seven churches of Revelation, Jesus approaches each church differently. He uses different of his own characteristics. In the way he approaches that church. So Jesus respects the uniqueness of each of the churches and provides a unique diagnosis and a unique remedy to each one. I think a model for how he treats individuals as well. Michael?
2: We humans are social beings, and touching is an important part of that component that we need to, whether it's a shake of the hand or just a touch to a cheek, a kiss. All those things are important. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, that got interrupted. The idea, you don't touch anymore, wear a mask, you don't want to reveal who you are. It isn't pointed that way, but that's really what it was. And I think we were all impacted by those kind of rules. And I remember my wife and I, we were told we couldn't attend church because we weren't vaccinated which was a hardship for both of us. So the idea of touching, and Jesus made that abundantly clear. He liked to touch people. And the woman who had been hemorrhaging for many years merely touched his garment. And he knew, who touched me? He said, it's an important component of who we are as human beings.
3: Mm. Yes. You know, it was predicted, I think, that when COVID's over, the shaking of hands will go the way of the dodo bird. And that's not been my experience the last couple months. It seems like everybody's just wanting desperately to reach out a hand and connect again. That, that illustrates how important that is from the human perspective. Clara May.
0: I just remembered a scripture that came to mind. I don't know the details around it right this minute, but he sends rain on the just and on the unjust.
3: Yeah, Matthew 5 45 to 47, somewhere in there, he makes that statement. So he's treating all equally but also we have evidence that he treats people uniquely according to their need. Robert,
2: we're all Gentiles here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we thank God for his openness to take us all in.
3: That's right. We're all Gentiles, at least most of us uh, in this room and in most rooms, and there would be no hope if it wasn't for what Christ did and what Paul outlined, you know, very much. Well, probably my favorite chapter in the book conversations about god is chapter 13 and in that chapter it's how god treats his erring children and you've all given some excellent ways of approaching this question you know how does god treat those who are different from himself but there were a couple of turns in that chapter that were just so fresh that they brought the whole thing to even a clearer perspective and i just wanted to just share briefly before we close one of them is David and Solomon. God says to Solomon, you have not been faithful to me your whole life long the way your father David was. It's in 1 Kings. And it's kind of like, huh? David was faithful to God his whole life long? You know, that's not not what the record seems to say. But it says how God treated David. The difference between David and Solomon is that Solomon ended up worshiping idols. David never did. David never turned his back on Yahweh, even though he murdered 201 innocent people and all kinds of other grievous offenses to God. God never gave up on David, and David never gave up on God. And that was a stunner to me, realizing how God looked at David even in his worst moments, as if David had never wandered away from him in any way, shape, or form. That's one piece that really impressed me. And then the woman taken in adultery. We all know that story, and we've already mentioned it in this session. But an overlooked piece is how he treated her accusers, that he knelt down on the temple floor and wrote their sins in the dust of the ground, giving enough information that they could recognize themselves and be ashamed and walk away from the situation, leave the woman alone. And after they walked away, Jesus shuffled his feet and the record was gone. How he let them keep their dignity, even though they'd behaved shamefully in that situation. Something similar happened with the woman who anointed his feet. And the Pharisee who questioned that was a far greater sinner than she was. But Jesus left him with his dignity. He just told a parable that only he and the Pharisee really understood. And Jesus left him with his dignity. Same with Judas. Judas, when he went out to betray Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, Hey guys, you know where this guy's going? You know what he's about to do? Why don't you give him the raspberry, you know, on the way out the door? No. No. Jesus says, Oh, Judas. Yeah. Go ahead. Do what you're doing, you know, and hurry up about it. And the disciples are wondering, was he sending him out for shopping this late hour? or uh, What's going on here? They had no idea. And we see in how Jesus treated Judas on that occasion. How he treats his erring children. And ultimately, of course, in that very same incident, Jesus, knowing who he was, washed his disciples' feet. And that is a metaphor, I think, of how God treats those who are different. And as we learn our way into that character, that picture of God, the walls can be broken down between us as well. Let's pray as we close. We thank you, Lord, for your incredible grace, your kindness, your love. We thank you for that. We don't thank you enough. We're grateful again that you are with us today and pray that you'll be with us in the week to come.
2: We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.